Welcome again to the Sound of the Genuine FTE's limited audio series on vocation, meaning, purpose. And today I'm joined by one of the coolest friends I know, Dr. Stephanie Edwards, who is the executive director of the BTI, which is the consortium of Boston area theological schools. And her journey to this place was not a straight line like so many of our stories. So I'm grateful that Dr. Edwards spent a little bit of time with me on the Sound of the Genuine. I am glad to have you here with me, sharing your story. It's so good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. As we heard, it's a new day in America, so we're doing okay. I know what you do as the executive director of the BTI, but you haven't always been that. So we're going to go back a little bit. I'm curious as where you grew up, what that was like, and tell me a little bit about yourself. I grew up in a predominantly white, middle upper class suburb outside of Portland. And I grew up like a lot of people who look like me. I had parents that were middle manager on my dad and my mom's a public school teacher. I had the classic smart little kid overachiever calendar. Pat knows I like to make lists. It started early. (laughs) So I had 19 activities every day and I ran around doing everything I could get my hands on. And that was wonderful because I did get to explore. I got to travel and that's something I'm still passionate about. For a lot of intents and purposes, it's a very stereotypical suburban growing up. I was not raised with religion. My parents are crunchy granola, (laughs) little bit like late 70s hippies. And part of that, though, was we talked a lot about how to form morality and what was right and what was wrong and lots of modeling from my parents about values and how they live out in the world. What what were your parents' hopes for a young Dr. Edwards who had a (laughs) list? What were they hoping you would put on those lists? Um, Literally everything. My parents were success-driven in the sense that They knew that they had been given opportunities for education and career advancement that their parents necessarily hadn't had. And then that meant another degree of freedom for their kids, for me and my brother. So I think the central thing to accomplish was get an amazing education. But I always had that, (laughs) I don't want to do what you want to do, mom, especially in my mid-20s, figuring out what I wanted to do and not to fit into this potentially like more socially acceptable climb the ladder type of vocation that was difficult. I don't think my uh, meandering path was quite in their vision. The way they had lived their careers, which was college entry level 25 years till you retire was more what they had envisioned. But that being said, they're on board. Let me ask about that then. So you're discerning, let's just say going into college, you've had all these great experiences, but you have to make a decision, go out on your own. What types of things were you looking at? If you had a long list of 17 things that you wanted to do in your life and you had the freedom to explore, how did you narrow it down and where did you narrow it down? And what was the relationship between uh, your folks as you negotiated that? I will say I'm a bit stubborn and let's put this in positive terms. And in high school, I got lucky enough to have a just incredible history teacher. And she put in the hands of this 14 year old Howard Zinn's people history of the United States. And I was like, oh yes, this is it. And it clicked. And when I read this really life-changing book with a community of young people, I learned the word social justice. And I was like, this is a thing as a 14 year old that I can get behind. You have that righteous anger as a teen. (laughs) And I was like, oh, but this is what it's for. 
And I started going to protests with this teacher. <laughs> I started getting, you know, more involved and more educated about the world. And so when it came down to discerning college, I knew I wanted to go somewhere where I could keep doing that. And I applied all over. I had happened to meet a college recruiter at a fair from Santa Clara University, a Jesuit school in the Bay Area. And I end up there through scholarship and a couple other things. And I didn't know what a Jesuit was. <laughs> I think it's Catholic. I like the tagline, men and women yeah. for others. Let's go for it. And from there, you get into a world where for the first time, because hypocrisy has always been my thing and it was really my thing in my teens, I hated it. And I finally got to watch people walk the talk at Santa Clara. Mm -hmm. I had never known someone who was celibate for any reason. <laughs> And to meet a bunch of people who are like going to sacrifice a huge part of what it means to be a human being, in my opinion, mm -hmm. to do this thing with their life. I was like, man, there has to be something in there that is true. First off, I started taking theology classes and I, again, got really lucky and had this uh, professor named Fred Perella who teaches Introduction to Christian Theology. I was like, I love this class. It's all about what it means to be a human and what it means to be alive and fully flourishing in the world. And so from there, I dove in academically to the study of religion. And then the real pivotal time was when I got to study abroad in El Salvador, fall of my junior year. And it's a no longer, unfortunately, an operating program, but the Casa de la Solidaridad, the House of Solidarity, was a program set up in response to the Jesuits who were killed during the Civil War in El Salvador. And while professional priests went down to take their place, there had been this idea that students should come and also mm -hmm. form communities of solidarity with students in El Salvador for the purpose of cross-cultural education, but also this idea of global social justice. How do we recognize that we're all connected in ways that are actually very real and visceral and not just disconnected and theoretical and commit to those connections in a way that can move us all forward. And so that semester, honestly, I think it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Going there and, and not just being in an immersion trip context, but actually being like, I'm gonna go live in El Salvador for five and a half months. It's my life. I'm gonna live in the community. Part of the program was working in the community two days a week for free. And that was to try to break down these false barriers and put people together and say, make it work. Try to figure out what you've learned about is becoming real in this situation. And what then can you do as an individual agent to come up against that and say, where am I here? Where is the actual moment where I can make a difference, not in some epic, I'm going to tear down the systems of oppression way, but in that interpersonal, and I would argue like more long lasting and tangible way, the ways in which we really create lasting bonds that work towards justice. So when I came back from that, uh, came back to Christmas in the same house I grew up in, in the same suburb. And my mom asked me to go get the ham because it was honey baked <laughs> ham in the mall. I've been in El Salvador for five and a half months. I get off the plane, it's like the next day. And I walk into the mall in Clackamas, Oregon, outside of Portland. And I walk in to a store that is exclusively for ham. And I, I can laugh about it now, but I was so mean to the poor ham lady. <laughs> Because I was so 
overwhelmed. I ended up later working with refugees and asylees, and you hear this from them because they walk into a supermarket, let alone a honey-baked ham store, and they're like, how do you choose? Like, why are there 50 different types of ham? There's no need. So I I took this ham and I sit in the car and I just broke down. I just cried because it's so hard to make these connections with places and people throughout the world and then return to the place you're from, which in my case is one defined by privilege and still feel like you're productively working for justice and productively working for change. It's that ongoing balancing act, I think for me, of being a person who embodies and lives in a lot of privilege to say, okay, you've cried over the ham. <laughs> That's okay. But now what do you do, right? Now, how do you re-enter your family's still your family. Your suburb that you grew up in is still your suburb. How do you figure out what you're now going to do? Because for very few people, actually, are you going to stay in the place that created that change for you if you come from a place like mine? You're often you're going to return. And then for me, it was that negotiation of now what? what do I do after that? And for me, it was a year of service. I, I had a had an amazing senior year back at Santa Clara. I was lucky enough to have a cohort of five women who'd also been on my semester abroad, who went into spiritual direction with a priest who'd also been in El Salvador with us. We continued that community through the senior year, did a lot of discernment. It was weekly. It was a lot of intense discussions and work together. And then through that, decided to do the Jesuit Volunteer Corps for a year uh, in New Orleans, which was 2007, 2008. So about a year after, a year and a half after Katrina. Stephanie, I'm really curious about like the two worlds in terms of, like the physical manifestation, what you've seen, what you've experienced. But I, I imagine that part of also this tension is a internal kind of tension between, like you said, it's not just the, the two different worlds, the systems that make this possible. But I'm wondering what guidance or mentors or folks helped you discern through that. And what were you imagining for yourself as you try to reconcile these two very different worlds? Yeah, I will say spot on just in the question, because it's not something you do alone. I mentioned that community of women and that spiritual director. I have found if I resign myself to thinking this can only be solved by me sitting down and figuring it out, I'm never going to leave this room. I, I cannot do this type of work alone. When I had that spiritual direction, and then I also was at the time, because I mentioned I was not raised in any sort of faith, starting that at that point, I started discerning whether or not I was going to become Catholic, which took a few more years to figure out. And I do <laughs> now identify as Catholic and, and I'm full member of the church. I think that one of the main things that has been hard for me to live into, but is something these communities of support always remind me of is the service that you embody should be service of joy. The joy that you feel in doing your work is the work you're supposed to be doing, right? The Thurman quote, the world needs people who are fully alive. The world doesn't need a martyr. The world doesn't need someone out here saying, if I just hurt more, you're going to hurt less. That's not the case. And that can be really hard for those of us, and particularly me, who are interested in making sure that we're leveraging our privilege toward the good and recognizing that some of it we can strip away, but some of it is inherent. And how do we make sure that we're not falling into that trap of self-sacrificial BS, to put it lightly, 
right? Figuring out the ways you can live out of joy and fullness toward other people and with other people is the ongoing struggle for me. I think seeking out any sort of mentorship has been crucial, whether it's academic, personal, or otherwise. And I do a lot of work in groups and it's not necessarily role models or mentors, but it's co-mentorship where you're getting together with groups of people who have similar interests and even just friends like you and I became friends in that type of group and making sure that those connections remain strong. And then you can call each other on when you're like, is that really, are you fully feeling yourself? Cause I don't see it. That's real talk. And I think especially for me, who is someone who it could be so easy to just fall back into patterns of privilege and patterns of comfort, so easy to keep those people around you who are keeping you accountable to your true self and what you really want and not just what's easy has been just definitive of keeping this life of mine going. I'm curious about how you do keep that going as you think about coming out of that volunteer (laughs) process and thinking about, okay, I need to do something about this. I need to live a life that matches my teenage self who will not deal with my own hypocrisy. What do you do with that? And and how did you move beyond that experience and and try to make a difference in the world? What was your next step? It it was a hard decision to only do one year of service. I actually did apply to to do a second to extend and I got permission to do so and got through the program. But then I also had this offer from BU and was very excited about all of the books and classes. And I did start to think about how do I balance the things I really want to do, the things I really want to accomplish, and this idea of being in service to others. What's the best way for me to do that? Opening myself up to an opportunity to get better at things, to be a better person, to give myself the space to feel like I had more tools in my toolbox felt essential. I'm not saying that was an easy decision. Leaving New Orleans was one of the hardest things I I, did at that period in my life because I felt so tied and I still feel incredibly tied to that city and still am in a lot of ways. I knew though, I wasn't ready to do some of the things even that my job had been asking of me. I was practicing what we call paraprofessional social work where they throw an intern (laughs) into a position that they should not be in because of the weird ways we treat social work as not valuable, as not worthy of compensation because you're serving the poor, you don't matter. That's the systematic denigration of social work. Unfortunately, one of the reasons we have perpetual cycles of poverty is because the profession that's supposed to serve people is also denigrated. Even if I wanna come back here or come back to this context in any way, I have to get better, I have to get right. with myself. And so I went back to school, did both my master's in theological studies, which is the more academic version of a seminary degree, and my master's in social work, where I focused on nonprofit management and grant writing. I really was initially in grad school to get those social work skills. Now I can run a budget. Now I can figure out how to optimize care. Now I can figure out a lot of ethical quandaries that I hadn't had space to do in the work setting. And in so doing, theology got its hooks back in me. I figured out that I really didn't come alive in social work classes. I came alive doing the internships. I loved that. But in the academic setting, I really came alive in theology. And it was an exciting time for me because it was a moment where I got to balance both of the things I love to do. I was being fed and given time and space to figure out things that I needed to do. 
Hey, it's Pat here from the Forum for Theological Exploration. If you've liked what you've heard and sounded the genuine, but need just a little bit more help discerning your call and your purpose in the world, we have a really cool online learning experience for you. We've put together these stories and many other resources to help you do that work of discerning your life's call, meaning, and purpose. You can find that resource and many more at fteleaders.org. We look forward to working with you and helping you discern your next most faithful step. Thanks again for listening to The Sound of the Genuine. I'm going to have to ask about that graduation because I know for my own graduation, it wasn't like recruiters were waiting. I'm wondering what that was like if you're coming alive with this MTS, but you also got this MSW that you're working on. How do you activate this call or this liveness in you um, that comes through theology? You don't immediately. Or at least in my case, I had this MSW, right? And part of the reason you do this is because you often get hired by the people you intern for. And that happened for me. Uh, I worked for the Massachusetts Office for Victim Assistance, and it serves a broadly defined victims of crime and the agencies that support them. Even though I knew I had this thing in the back of my head that was like, I don't think you're done with theology, but you have student debt. I, I worked in that position all the while getting less and less excited about who I was and what I was doing. I just wasn't connecting with it. It was very necessary work, but it wasn't enough. It was getting at me on every level. And I'm lucky enough to have been in a relationship with my now husband. And he said to me one day, he was like, you're just not happy anymore. You don't have to do this. And he called me on it, right? It's going back to that community, these people that you can call on to say, I don't feel good. Do you also see me not feeling good? So I quit that job. It was hard. It was uh, intense, but I knew the minute I did it, it was the right thing. I felt something release in me. I left a month later and moved to the woods of Maine without a job. I spent the next year doing odd jobs, working as a freelance grant writer, working at a ski resort, bartending, barista-ing like every overqualified dual master's student in the world. And then through that process, I was really intentional about my discernment. I reached back out to mentors from undergraduate and from graduate school who were professors and spiritual directors, friends. And I said, I'm going to work through a discernment process here. I need to figure this out. And again, the list making, it runs so deep in my soul. I made a program for myself. Five days a week, I blogged. I love writing. So I had to publicly post it, which kept me accountable. I read books with people. I did letter writing book club with some people. And eventually it became clear that I wanted to go back to theology school. I really wanted to be a professor. And so I went through the application twice, two rounds to find the right school. And after two rounds, luckily I got into Boston College and started a new chapter. What about Boston College and what about the project that you're working on? I'm trying to make sense of how you connect all these experiences, times in the woods. How did you find your joy through a doctoral program? I love school. So it, it wouldn't surprise me that I ended up there, but I didn't start out discernment with a goal already in mind. I think a lot of us reverse engineer our discernment because it's really scary to say, I don't know. Part of my privilege in this was that I had the financial capacity, I had the resources to take the time I needed to figure all of this out and be very open to whatever it revealed in me. And what I wanted to do was never end up in a position again where I felt like I had to give up a passion. 
I wanted to only go forward in a environment, in a program, in a job where I could be my fullest self. And graduate work in theology for me became specifically a doctorate in theological ethics. So I wanted to focus on ethics. And I also wanted to focus on trauma studies, which is something that I had started thinking really deeply about in New Orleans. My friends and my experiences there gave me a lot of really life-changing experiences that started to also coalesce around what I'd experienced in El Salvador. In graduate school round one, I started to get some language around trauma and theology and how those two things intersect. And so when I decided to go back, my proposal is what I ended up writing my dissertation on, which is broadly in trauma and theology, specifically Christian Catholic theology and mental health. And the ways in which that very broadly defined topic lets me bring all of me into it. And I tell students this still, theology is a place where it's literally talk about God. It's talk about being. And if you're talking about being, anything that is pertinent to you is pertinent to theology. And so theology in the doctoral program gave me this space, one, to do the things that I just deeply love to intellectually do. Sit down and talk about Christian mysticism all day, every day. (laughs) Love it. Who's going to do that? Only in a doctoral program. But then also to say the end goal of this whole thing is to speak about and enliven ethics. What do we do in situations of injustice, in situations of trauma, in everyday life? What do we do? And so it was a really illuminating process. It was very difficult for all the reasons a doctorate is difficult. But because I felt like it was the one space I could bring all this together, bring everything to bear in one location, it was really deeply rewarding. It almost sounds like in your project, hearing your story back, that you are able to research and close the gap between the experience in El Salvador, New Orleans, which are theological programs. I mean, you're doing discernment in those communities. And I am thinking that is really powerful work. That's not disembodied brain work in a lab or in a library alone. That is bringing all these experiences into research. So that way, when the next generation is coming along and discerning, they read a work that has put those things together. It's not one or the other. They're in the same spot. That's really powerful. Dr. Edwards, you've written this dissertation. You've done this great work. You've put these things together. You graduate. What's next? Yeah. They don't just uh, give you tenure track professorships, do they? (laughs) They should. No, I will say something that was not totally surprising, but very affirming during the doctoral program I did was Boston College focuses really intensely on teaching, training you as a teacher, getting you in the classroom with a teaching mentor, going through a real development of your pedagogy and teaching philosophy, which is not always the case in a doctoral program. So through that process, I learned I love teaching. Like, I love it, but (laughs) the job market is rough, to put it lightly. Uh, I got to the final round at two different schools and didn't end up getting either for a variety of reasons. So during my program, my husband and I got married, and also we bought our house. We live in Southern Maine, and community here and family here became incredibly important in ways that I did not foresee. And as I fell in love with people here and the necessity of being close to to his family here, it became more and more clear that I wasn't willing to go anywhere 
I was not willing to leave my community. And that was a surprise to me. I'm home now. And so when I was on the market, that was in mind. So that's a limiting factor. And then also I didn't get those jobs. And, and one of them told me flat out, it was a Catholic school, that I did not get the position because of my politics. On the one hand, good. Like you don't want to be in a circumstance where you can't speak your truth. But because of that, I started looking more broadly. And during that process, the Boston Theological Interreligious Consortium, the BTI, needed a new executive director. It is a small nonprofit, so I have a background in that, but they are theologically focused. It's a consortium of 10 graduate schools in the greater Boston area, so they always want someone that has a usually a doctorate in theology. And I threw my hat in the ring and I was offered the position and here we are. I won't lie, going back into administration was not something I was super excited about. Like I said, that the teaching part, I was struggling with leaving. But over the past year at the BTI, I've kept teaching one course online through a local state school and one course in person at Boston College. It's a good balance. Sure, I have more administrative crud on my plate than I would prefer. But again, my job is to then also be a theologian. So it's okay for me to be writing. It's okay for me to be researching. It's better if the person in charge of the BTI is an active theologian. I'm growing into this position. If there's ever a time in your life and in my life where I felt circumscribed, the first place to look is, am I putting limits on myself? Am I telling myself and creating false ideas about what I can or can't do in this position? I ended up asking the chair of the BTI. I was like, I'm going to the Society for Christian Ethics meeting. I'm presenting. I need to, to take time. And he was like, no, that's not vacation time. That's work time. It was a limit I had put on the position that didn't really exist in the way they saw it. And I think for anyone, including myself, if I could go back and tell myself this back when I had my first job out of graduate school, would be to say, what are those limits or those things I'm interpreting as limits and then enforcing on myself that actually I can just do away with, or maybe I just need to ask and to be more creative and to push on those barriers and to not let to not let myself be defined by the day-to-day -day grind and instead look for the larger contours of what's possible in the context. What I love about the way you're talking about vocation and discernment right now is that it is an ongoing process. You're never standing up on top of the mountain, that it, it is constantly discerning. I have one more question for you, and this is really about how you've come to this kind of comfort with discernment by listening to your community say, you're not happy, <laughs> or the permission to say no. Going back to the beginning, you said the world doesn't need a martyr. My question is really how much of this discernment for you comes from the many communities you've described, and how much of it comes from some sort of inner drive. I'm going to project on to your story here, an inner list that you have. Sure. It's both, I think, which is an easy way out of that question. <laughs> no, it's very theological, both and. Part of doing theology, part of why I love it, and part of what drives my students insane is that it's not an either or. That God is not an either or. If God is truly mystery, then existence is both and. That's it. And if you really, if you take that seriously, which I try to do, then to cling or to grasp at certainty as the goal is such a false promise. And you're only going to be disappointed. For me, the central teaching that is very internal is practicing 
doing almost daily meditation about releasing certainty. What does it mean to let go? The phrase I love is letting go of what no longer serves you. A lot of things don't serve me. Scarcity mindset doesn't serve me. Certainty mindset doesn't serve me. Rigidity doesn't serve me physically or mentally. Ways in which you inhabit stretching, you inhabit healthy pushing. How do you live in those uncomfortable moments and realize that you're still going to be okay? That discomfort doesn't mean failure. Discomfort doesn't mean tragedy. It means that you're growing, you're learning, you're figuring something out. And for me, that's internal work. I have to be really intentional about creating those spaces where it is more of a yogic practice where it's an embodied practice. Through my embodied practice, I remind my mind and my spirit of the lessons I'm learning while I move my body. And I know a lot of people feel that through dance, feel it through walking, hiking, whatever the thing is. For me, that's an individual internal practice that I have to keep up. And it's also prayer. I see all of those activities as very prayerful. And then for community, I, I laugh because like my core relationships are defined on calling each other out, which I don't know if that says something about me. Real honesty, being with people. And I have been so deeply lucky in my life to at every step have had these communities learning that when someone critiques you or calls you out, it's not because they judge you. It's not because they love you any less. It's actually because you are asking them to tell you how to be better, that you understand that if you're committed to a friendship, that friendship means I see you not being who you are. I'm, I'm going to be here, but I'm seeing this. And for me, that is indispensable. When I'm challenged every day, I have now got this fortitude within myself and I've got these people outside of me who are going to be there to embrace me when I mess up because it's not about perfection. If you want to feel more comfortable with being uncomfortable, you got to practice it. And that's been really true for me. And that's in my external relationships and my internal self-work. I'm just thinking about how... Uh beautiful that is this sense of release and where that release takes you is into the heart of the community for people to catch you and to hold you and to hold you in truth call you out when you need to be called out those two things go on hand in hand that's really incredible dr edwards i am so grateful for this time and to know you and to be called out by you and to <laughs> Learn from your journey, and I just want to say from the left coast, best coast, all the way to our journeys together on the east coast, it is a pleasure to know you and to know the work that you're doing to live your fullest self and bring all those pieces together and the world's better for it. So thank you for sharing that this time with us. Thank you so much. I just want to mention that part of my work now is working with students or anyone at their path in theological discernment. So if there's any reason that anyone who engages with this material might want to reach out to the BTI and to me specifically, please do. There's always opportunities for us to grow together as theological community. Now, I just want to thank you for joining us on the sound of the genuine and listening to Dr. Edwards' story. Now, we know you have a story to tell. Share it with us. Write us an email. Drop us a line. We would love to hear it. Special gratitude to Heather Wallace and Elsie Barnhart, FT's design managers, and at Yale Beats for his music. 
Don't forget, you can get more information about the Forum for Theological Exploration and our many resources at ftleaders.org. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on The Sound of the Genuine.